I would encourage you to open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, as we together this evening will be taking a look at verses 19 through 26, continuing on in Paul's letter to the Christians at Philippi. You remember that the Philippians, who loved him dearly, had sent a present to him as he was languishing in jail in Rome and were hoping for news, and he had sent back word to them. But he was not merely, obviously, interested in telling them how he was doing in terms of the trial and things like that, but rather he was more concerned for their growth in grace, their growth in joy in the Lord, and we see all of those things coming out in his letter. But before we uh, turn our attention to what Paul had to say to them, let's go to the Lord who gave him the words to, to write in the first place, and let's ask for his blessing. Sovereign Lord, as we gather in your name, it is our desire that we would be illuminated inwardly. We ask that as we read your word, that the light that only the Holy Spirit could give would be present within our minds, bringing the text to life, that we would remember that these words were written for us just as much as they were ever written for a congregation in Philippi. And I do pray, Lord, that you would help us to apply them as well that we would be thinking of our life in its totality, not just one day in seven, but rather all of it uh, as something that is a reasonable sacrifice to be given to the service of God. May it be that we too would be living our lives for Jesus Christ and would see uh, even death in him as gain. Oh Lord, we do pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 1. And then reading verses 19 through 26, I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is grain. Again, rather. <laughs> but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for uh, all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I am a socially awkward person. Uh, and I have to remind myself, for instance, we went away, obviously, for the uh, wedding. And the more people there are in any particular situation, parties being one of the worst, the more socially awkward I become. And I literally have to uh, remind myself, don't say anything weird or inappropriate. Don't say anything weird or inappropriate and so on. Uh, and when I begin to stop saying that kind of thing to myself, sometimes I'll say something weird and inappropriate. And people will look at me like, eh? you know, why did you say that? Uh, so from time to time, I phrase things extremely poorly, not considering the way that they'll be received by somebody else. 
Um, one occasion that comes to mind where I did something like that uh, was many, many years ago. I was flying to a church planting conference in Mississippi. It was the Twin Lakes uh, Church Planting Conference. And at that time, uh, they, we were flying out of Fayetteville, and it was just a little turboprop uh, puddle jumper. And the lady sitting next to me, she was uh, German, was deathly, you could tell from the very beginning, she was deathly afraid of flying. One of those people who, you know, puts their hands on, on both of the, uh, both of the hand rests and kind of grips them as though she has to hold on to the plane or she'll fly out of it at some point. But um, we went through some really, really bad turbulence, some of the worst I've experienced. And every time the plane would go up, you know, suddenly uh, she would go, ah, ah. so we're going through. She's making all of these noises. Um, and in one of the uh, times when the turbulence subsided for a little while, I, I turned to her and I said, are you afraid to die? Um, and from her expression, I realized I probably not, that wasn't the, the best question <laughs> that I could have asked her, or in that manner. Um, but she turned to me and she said, of course, aren't you? Uh, and I said, no, I'm really not. I think that disturbed a little more. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, <laughs> but... I, I actually, I said to her, the reason I bring this all up is because I, uh, in answering her, I said, no, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I said, uh, you know, let me tell you about why I'm not afraid to die. And I think, you know, mostly because it got her mind off of what was going on. Uh, she was willing to listen to me for half an hour. The Lord provided an opportunity uh, for me to discuss the gospel and what it was that took away that fear of dying. That is natural to all mankind. There is that fear of what is to come. We see that in, you know, Hamlet's soliloquy, to be or not to be. And at the end, he, uh, you know, he determines he He's not going to do himself in because of the fear of what might come next. The people who live in this world not knowing Christ are, I find, generally speaking, in constant fear of what is to come. But Paul was not like that at all. Paul, his, his entire mindset is entirely different. He was waiting in expectation, in joy, really, for what would come next. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He had no fear, therefore, of dying. In fact, we see in his words, as he's writing to the Philippians, there is that, because of that great expectation that he has of entering into the presence of the Lord, whom he loves, whom he had seen, you remember, as he was going to Damascus, the Lord Jesus Christ had spoken to him and had said, Paul, Paul, or at that time, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And had indicated to him that he had a great purpose for his life. He was to be the apostle to the Gentiles. This was the savior that Paul knew and desperately wanted to be with. So he lived his life in great expectation that as soon as he passed out of this world, he would merely pass through the veil and into the presence of the living God. Paul wanted to see Jesus with his own eyes. He saw him at this point in time, as, even as he's writing, through, uh, writing to the Philippians, as through a glass darkly. But what was his great desire? He wanted to see him face to face. 
But as he's writing to the Philippians, he acknowledges, of course, that the Philippians also want to see Paul. They don't want Paul to pass away. And Paul understood that they needed him as well as a spiritual mentor. They needed his help as they continued to, to be built up in the faith, as they continued to grow in grace. So he speaks to them, talking about, first off, the importance of their own prayers of supplication in his situation. Here he was in a Roman jail in a life and death situation, and he says that he will be delivered through their supplication, but also, obviously, through the working of the Lord. And there is this wonderful synchronicity, obviously. If you are praying for me to the Lord, then the Lord will be working in this situation. And therefore, we will have this, the, the human, obviously, the weaker part, and then the, uh, the great divine working that will be giving me the help that I need. And so he's writing to them and saying to them, pray for me. Do you say that to other people? Do you say, pray for me? And then think to yourself that the prayers that that person offers up could be of great importance in whatever it is that's going on in your life. Thinking to yourself, by this person's prayers, I may be delivered from a terrible situation. I may see uh, that great um, development that I am hoping will occur in my life spiritually. I will make uh, finally the the advance that I I need to in my spiritual life and so on. I, I hope you do, and I hope you pray for one another, that you understand the power of prayer. Now, we understand that it is not our prayers that change, things, but that rather that the Lord has appointed that the prayer, uh, that prayer is the means by which he will change things, but that the uh, means by which he will bring to pass those things that his people have need of. Now, of course, the Lord knows what we have need of better than we do. And yet, as a loving father, and I've mentioned this many a time, it is his desire that we would come and ask of what we have need of, knowing that he can change everything. There are so many things that seem or are impossible for men. For instance, it is impossible for us to change hearts. I I wish I could do it. I wish I could cause people like that woman on that plane to simply come to faith, you know, reach over and say, uh, you know, excuse me, and and flip the switch and boom, suddenly she's a believer and is no longer terrified of of the results of, of flight. But we can't do that. But we do, don't we know who can? We know who can change hearts, who has changed our heart, for instance, taking out that heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh. And so Paul says, pray for me, and that by this means, and he speaks with certainty, their intercession, their supplication for him will meet his needs. And I hope it is the case that you are keeping track of the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ and praying for them on a regular basis, going to the one who really can help them in whatever situation they have. And so Christ will be magnified. How will he be magnified? Well, according to his earnest expectation, he has this this great sense that something uh, wonderful is about to happen. Uh, And there is this idea that uh, he's listening, he's waiting. Um, Paul is constantly waiting on the Lord. And that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? To be constantly expecting that the Lord will do something in your particular situation. He lives with this sense of supernatural intervention constantly. So many people live uh, in the material world not acknowledging uh, the presence of the Lord at all, not grateful for his intercession, not expecting for things to do. Well, uh, 
for him to change things. But that should not be the case for you, Christians. Brothers and sisters, it should be the case that we are constantly living expectantly, waiting for the Lord to work and to move, and depending upon him to do so, knowing that no matter what situation afflicts us, the Lord can change it. Whatever we have need of, he can provide it. When we have health problems, knowing that uh, it's not merely you know, doctors and drugs that uh, we find our help in, but that rather the Lord works through these things. It was good for me to hear how Pat has been miraculously helped in the midst of this situation. Now, we are very thankful for the skill of her doctors as they treated her, but we know that it was not merely the skill of doctors alone, but rather the Lord's working in and through them and through the supplications of the saints. Well, that's the way that Paul lives. He has this eager expectation that the Lord will be working in his life constantly. Paul lived in a in a world that was simultaneously uh, natural and supernatural. He understood that there are natural events, but he understood who was in charge of all of them. And I pray that that's the case with you as well. And he notes that he's going to magnify Christ in his life in these words uh, that he spoke to, or rather wrote to the uh, Philippians, in his life or his death. Note that, whether or not I'm acquitted and released, or even if I'm put to death, I will magnify Christ. I will continue to have a song in my heart. It's not only in the good things that we should be magnifying the Lord, but knowing that regardless of what happens to us, if we're his children, he means good to occur through them. And Paul knew that his death would work for his good, ultimately, if that was the Lord's intention. Uh, Christ would be magnified. For him to live is Christ, therefore. And that's, a, that's an idea that uh, we can say, for me to live is Christ, and never really get to the, to the depths of that statement, right? There's so much caught up in it. Everything that we do, everything that we say, has been forever modified by Christ, is forever affected by him. The way that we live, the way that we express ourselves, our expectations, our hopes are very different from the way they once were without Christ. But he's made that that eternal change in our life. So therefore, for us to live is Christ. To live is to magnify Christ. To live is to serve Christ. To live is to be part of his kingdom, fulfilling that role that we all have. Do you think of yourselves as living stones in the temple that God is building here on earth? Do you think of your role in the kingdom of God, both in your family, in your place of work, in your marriage, as you teach, as you go about doing whatever it is that the Lord has appointed you to do? Do you think of yourself as doing that for Christ? Paul certainly did. Even when he was in his tent-making ministry, I'm sure he was laboring, whether he ate or he drank, everything was done for Christ, and not in this artificial way, not in a stilted way, but a natural way. Simply, the outpouring of his labors were always done for God. And so as he served others, he thought of himself as serving Christ. I've often said that the best marriages are those in which you have both parties, the husband and the wife. They're both laboring together to serve Christ, and therefore they naturally serve one another as an outgrowth of that. That's the best kind of way to live, serving the Lord and thereby serving his people through that. Now, he says that it will be gained to him also not just to live for Christ, but to die for Christ. We don't, I think, 
contemplate our mortality enough. The fact is, all of us, unless Christ returns first, are going to die. We are mortal people. That's one of the effects of the fall. We are all going to pass away eventually. But Paul speaks of the death of Christians in an odd way, doesn't he? He speaks of it as gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And not just, uh, uh, you know, thinking because I'm going to go to heaven, but rather an everlasting gain. Death is, as Simon Kistemacher put it, he said, death is a great loss to a carnal, worldly man, for he loses all his comforts and all his hopes, but to a good Christian it is gain, for it is the end of all his weakness and misery and the perfection of his comforts and the accomplishment of his hopes. It delivers him from all the evils of life and brings him to the possession of the chief good. As soon as we pass through the veil, brothers and sisters, we enter into the next stage of our existence. We end that period of probation. We end the time of affliction. We end all of our anxieties, all of our sorrows. There are no more tears. They are wiped away. No more sickness. Nothing that the fall has brought in continues on in our existence beyond that. And therefore, it is all gain, everlasting gain, eternal gain. And Paul lives with that in mind, knowing that these things are going to happen to him and also desiring them. Now, this does not mean that Paul was suicidal or crazy. He wasn't like uh, so many of the, uh, the Donatists uh, who would do things like they would charge out and they would martyr themselves by throwing themselves under the chariot wheels of Roman officials and things like that. Uh, that was not what Paul was talking about. Paul was simply thinking of the way that he would live out his life, living for Christ, and no matter what happened to him, it would all be subsumed in that desire to serve Christ and then to see him when he died on that day that the Lord had appointed for him. He knew that it would be to his everlasting gain that all of his investments here, so to speak, his spiritual investments would be realized more than he could possibly imagine. Uh, one Christian martyr said to his persecutors as they led him to death, you take a life from me that I cannot keep and bestow a life upon me that I cannot lose. And so therefore he understood that to die was gain. The Greek uh, there implies the state after death, not the act of dying incidentally. So it's the consequence of my death is my everlasting gain. It does not cut off. There's no soul sleep, for instance. So our, our fellowship with Christ is not interrupted in any sense. It is, it is realized. It, it becomes perfect at that point of us coming into his presence. So for the Christian, death is a precious thing. And that's how we can say precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints, as the psalmist puts it. We are about to enter into, we're all living in the hope of entering into, aren't we, the presence of our Lord? And so therefore death is not something that should frighten us. Death is not something that will take anything from us. Death is not something therefore that we should fear. It should be rather something that we anticipate in one sense with joy. Now, we don't speak of death as a good thing in and of itself. We need to remember that death is an effect of the fall and that it's not a good thing that people die in pain and so on, but for us, Death is a transition. It takes us from this present life into eternal life, and therefore it is never to be feared. Death has lost its sting. There is no victory in the grave. It is 
for us as Christians something that brings us into that perfect likeness of Christ and into his presence and into a communion that will have no end. I love to meet with the saints on his day because it's a foretaste of that communion that will go on forever in eternity when I will no longer have that separation uh, from the beloved in Christ and never again have any sense of separation from Christ. But Paul speaks, of course, uh, with this dilemma because he is a servant of the Lord. And he knows that the people whom he's been serving need his help. It's his desire to depart. I want to pack up my tent is kind of the image that he's, he's given. I'm tired of camping here. You know, I love going camping for a little while. I, I really do. I don't know if you've experienced that. Um, so, for instance, uh, we did a while back, we did a section hike on the AT. This was many years ago now. And uh, I really enjoyed it uh, for a time. And then after a while, I'm like, man, my bed is so much better. <laughs> you know, I got tired of sleeping on the ground. I got tired of pitching the tent. I got tired of the, you know, the mosquitoes. I got tired of the bear coming up and sticking its nuzzle right against the, uh, uh, the tent walls and all of those things. I wanted to get back home. Paul feels the same thing. Paul understands that he's a pilgrim and a sojourner here on earth. And so he wants to depart. He wants to get back to his real home, the place where his citizenship really is. He wants to, to weigh anchor and sail off. You've got that, that picture at the end of the Lord of the Rings, the end of the, the return of the king, where they're going to sail off to the gray havens. There's this sense in their hearts that they are going back to the place where they should be the place where there is no longer difficulty, no longer war and all of those things that have afflicted them for the Christian. I mean, obviously Tolkien was a Christian um, and he was writing that as an analogy in some sense for what the Christian is looking forward to when he will set sail, when he will pack up his tent, when he will go off to be with the Lord forever, entering into joys that cannot be described possibly uh, in their fullness. The destination that Paul yearns for is not to see the Philippians and Philippi again. The destination that he really is yearning for is heaven. But he knows that the Philippians need him. They need him very much. And so he knows he needs to stay and to continue to serve them. He loves Christ, but he is willing to put the needs of Christ's people in his service first and therefore he knows that he needs to continue serving them and he has this assurance from God that he will be enabled to do so this is a supernatural kind of thing uh, he knows that the the Lord uh, has appointed for him work to do and there's still uh, time to do it uh, he's been persuaded he's got this settled conviction I know I shall abide I know I'll continue with you all uh, this is something that, you know, I, we, most of us can't express. Paul is receiving this as, uh, from the Lord. Uh, we have a desire to stay and to work and to continue to serve God's people. We're never sure from day to day whether that will happen. I plan every week to preach on Sunday. Am I certain to preach on Sunday every week? No. no. The day will come, possibly, when I put down, you know, I begin the work of writing a sermon that I will never preach because it will be interrupted. I will go off to, to my final reward as well. 
Paul had this knowledge, though, that uh, I am going to remain on this side of eternity for a time in that I may serve you and see you all. I will see you again. He was weary in one sense of working on this side of eternity, but he had this subtle conviction, there's more for me to do. I was reminded as I was reading uh, and preparing for this of the experience of George Whitfield as he was doing his final evangelistic tour within the United States, or the, it wasn't the United States at that point, was it? It was the American colonies. So Whitfield uh, was gradually getting ground down. Most of the great preachers of the, uh, of the gospel, um, so many of them have died in their 50s. I'm trying not to be alarmed by that, but because, uh, of course, I'm in my 50s. But then again, I'm not a great preacher of the gospel, so I've got an aid in that. Um, but uh, Whitfield uh, was, was, uh, was gradually nearing the end of his journey as well, and he was passing, he was on his way to Boston, and he passed through the town of Exeter, and he hadn't intended to stop there, hadn't intended to preach, but they knew he was coming, so they set up a platform, and people were urgently expecting him to deliver a message. One man looking at him saw how pale and how ill he looked, and he said to him, Sir, you are more fit to go to bed than to preach. Uh, True, sir, replied Whitfield, and turning aside, he looked up and he stated, um, I, he said, Lord Jesus, I am weary in thy work, but not weary of it. If I have not yet finished my course, let me go and speak for thee once more in the fields. Seal thy truth and come home and die. And that... What a, what a great declaration that is. There's the preacher's heart being poured out. I'm willing to serve you yet again, O Lord. I'm tired, but I'm not tired of serving you. And that certainly, I'm sure, was what Paul was experiencing in the midst of, of jail. He wanted to continue to serve. He was always happy to labor for the Lord. And his desire, of course, was to see that the Philippians, whom he dearly loved, it wasn't just that he wanted to see them again, and this is very important. There wasn't just a sentimental desire to be amongst them again. He wanted to see them grow in love and in knowledge, in faithfulness and in obedience uh, Hendrickson writes, why is it important that believers progress? Because not to progress means to regress. Standing still spiritually is impossible, and I can't tell you how true that is. If we aren't progressing in our faith, if we aren't making our way up the hill difficulty, to use that analogy from Pilgrim's Progress, we will inevitably be going backwards. We must be ever pressing forward or we will be regressing. Hendrickson goes on to say, and regression produces depression, which is dejection, but progress means happiness, the joy unspeakable and full of glory. Paul had this joy that could not be taken away because he lived every day in the presence of God, simply waiting to pass into his presence. And he knew him, and every day he was growing more in his hope, his confidence, and his knowledge of the Lord. And he knew that if the Philippians were doing the same thing, they would have that same joy. Why do I stand here? I don't stand here merely because it's my vocation and my calling and speak to you. What is my desire? I want to see you progressing. I want to see you growing closer to God. I want to see you having that great hope that Paul had. And I want to see you, therefore, growing in that true joy that only the Christian has. And in that hope, that confidence. Because I don't know what's going to happen to you in your lives, but I know that there is a day awaiting when you will pass out of this world. 
And I want you to be as prepared as you possibly can before that day. I want you to be living every day for Christ and therefore living joyfully for him. But at the same time, I want you to be in a position where you know that for you to die is gain. And therefore, there is nothing to fear. One of the reasons why I came to Fayetteville, believe it or not, was never before had I experienced a community in which so many people were living on the edge of eternity and yet so many of them completely unprepared to make the final step. It was something that struck me. And so I, I wanted to be used in this place. I had a sense that this was where I was supposed to come. And, and since that time, of course, I have been so honored, so blessed to meet so many uh, people, some of whom have gone on to their final reward in the meantime. But to be able to be used in preparing people to exalt the Lord, to be in his presence, to worship him forever. That's one of the greatest privileges that anybody could ever have. And therefore, while I can say with Whitfield, I am weary in the work, I will, I don't think, and I pray this is never the case, I don't think I will ever be weary of the work. This is the hardest thing I have ever done in my entire life. And yet it is the most profitable the most important, and you too can be used in that way, just as Paul was, as parents passing on this knowledge to your children that they might have that true joy. We all want to give our kids an inheritance, at least I hope we want to give our kids an inheritance, but I hope we want to give them an eternal inheritance, something that the world can't take away, that thieves can't steal, that the government can't tax something rather that will serve them profitably forever. As teachers, I know it's our great desire to see our kids learning about math and English and all of those things that are so important for their, their lives in this world. But what is more important, learning about mathematics and English or learning about the one who fashioned the universe and in which they will be deploying their math skills and so on? Hopefully it's your desire, if you're a teacher or an officer or whatever, that you will be blessing those who are under you, however you possibly can, and seeing them progress and get closer to God. Well, did Paul get to see the Philippians again? We're not absolutely certain of that, but we think that he probably did. There is, uh, within the word, uh, there are hints, uh, implications that, the Paul, uh, that Paul was able to see the Philippian. Uh, the Philippians, one uh, commentator writes, all the historical evidence points to the fact that Paul's expectation was fulfilled and that having been released, he actually visited the Philippians once more. So... Hopefully there was that happy reunion and he had a chance once again to labor in their midst and to prepare the men who would be training them. Let me make a, a quick application. If we live with the mindset that Paul had, we are really ready and prepared for service to God. I am reminded of what William Carey said. You remember, the, uh, he was really the, the father of foreign missions in some senses, that great Baptist missionary. His great slogan was, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. If we are living, uh, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, then we will be best prepared to go into the world and to actually labor for his sake, not afraid of anything that the world can throw at us, not afraid of what is to come and not living with the fear of man. So many Christians live fearfully because they're afraid of what men can do to them. But if we're living every day in this supernatural consciousness that we were created by God, created to serve him, then our fear is taken away, that fear of man. 
and we'll be able to serve God joyfully. So for instance, I, we have the, so many examples in history, one that comes to mind immediately is the example of Jim Elliot and his compatriots. They went to Ecuador, didn't they, to, uh, to reach particularly, their, their great desire was to reach an unreached tribe, one that had never successfully been evangelized and whose uh, interactions, not just with Westerners, but with the tribes around them were always negative, the, the fierce people, the Orani. And they, they tried their hardest to reach these people. Uh, flying out to them, having encounters with them, giving them gifts, and eventually what happened to them? Well, Jim Elliott and his compatriots were put to death. They were speared. Uh, they died, and their family obviously was, was, was heartbroken by this. But yet, what had Jim Elliott said? He had written uh, these words. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And indeed, he served with that motto in mind. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. What was the aftermath of all of that? Well, it did not end badly. The families, particularly the wives of the men who had died trying to reach the Irani, they were used to bring the gospel to these fierce people. And those people are Christians today, ultimately because of what Jim Elliott and his friends were willing to do to see them progressing. That's a wonderful thing to consider. I, I know not how the Lord intends to use all of you, but I know it's his desire to do so. And I pray that you would think of your life as one of sacrifice to God, that you would be desiring to live for him day by day with a consciousness that death can't hurt you, that it's merely a stepping through the veil and entering into his presence that you would live like Paul. Now, I know that we'll never, most of us at least, maybe, maybe there's one or two here who will be world changers. I hope that's the case. But most of us will never affect the world in the way that Paul did. And yet, we can, can't we? We can live a life in which we're serving God, looking forward in expectation to what is to come and serving the Lord wherever he puts us, whether it's in an office in the midst of Fayetteville, on a plane flying out to Mississippi, wherever, giving us those opportunities to speak for, to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. If you live that way, I can tell you this, you will have those opportunities given to you, and I pray that you'll be ready for them. But more than that, I pray that you will be ready for what comes next, the longer part of your existence. As you step through the veil, I pray that it will be with great joy and that you will hear those words that every Christian longs to hear. Well done, O good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I pray that those words will be ones that you hear. And I pray that your eternity will be one where I will see you and we will be joyful together for all eternity. Let's look forward to that time that is ahead of those who know the Lord and who are living for him already. God, our Father, Lord, I do pray that you would make us people who live with eternity in mind, who remember that we are part of your redemptive history, that there is work to be done. And therefore, I pray, Lord, that we would live with that, that consciousness of Christ and his calling and what he has done for us day by day, that we would be honestly able to say, for me to live as Christ, but that we would also be looking forward to that day when we who were sinners saved by grace will die and gain everything. Lord, we have been given a gift by Jesus that can never be taken away, the gift of eternal life. It can't be stolen, can't be taxed, it can't be diminished. 
But we pray, O Lord, therefore, that we would have the opportunities to share that knowledge with others and that you would do the work that only you can, changing their hearts, whether it be relatives, whether it be children, siblings, co-workers, whoever, Lord. May it be that we are given a fearlessness, the kind that Paul had, and the ability to speak eloquently for Christ. Give us those words we need to speak in those moments and make them effectual. And we pray this in Jesus' holy